Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Friday, August 26th, 2022. So this is the last show for the week. I will be back after the weekend to catch you guys up on all the foreign policy news. But for now, we got lots of stuff to cover here. First story at the top of Antiwar.com, the U.S. launches more airstrikes in Syria. The U.S. launched more airstrikes in Syria on Thursday, marking the third day of violence since President Biden ordered the bombing of facilities in Deir Ezzor, Syria, on Tuesday night. A U.S. official said that Thursday's strikes were launched from an AC-130 gunship and killed a number of what the official called enemy combatants. These strikes were also launched in Deir Ezzor, The official said the strike was in response to rocket attacks that hit U.S. bases in eastern Syria on Wednesday, which injured three U.S. troops. Washington, you know, they already responded to that attack on Wednesday. So there was a rocket attack on the U.S. base at Green Village in Syria and at the Conoco gas fields. And those are both in eastern Syria. Three troops were lightly wounded. And the U.S. responded by launching helicopter strikes. And that was on Wednesday. But then on Thursday, they launched these other airstrikes. And they said that they were also done in response to these rocket attacks. And then U.S. Central Command, they put out a press release on Thursday that said, over the past 24 hours, CENTCOM forces had struck what they called Iran-affiliated fighters with AH-64 Apache attack helicopters, AC-130 gunships, and M777 artillery. CENTCOM said that the strikes resulted in, quote, four enemy fighters killed and seven enemy rocket launchers destroyed, end quote. So the Pentagon is saying that these strikes killed four fighters, what they're calling Iran-affiliated fighters. So the initial strike that started this escalation, that was ordered by President Biden on Tuesday night, and they, the CENTCOM said that they targeted infrastructure facilities used by groups affiliated with Iran's IRGC, but Iran has denied having links to this group. So they're not really sharing many details. They're just saying that they're bombing Iran-linked fighters while Iran's saying that they're not affiliated with them. And while Iran is denying that they're affiliated with these groups, the Pentagon said that these strikes are a message to Tehran. This was from Colin Cal. He's the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. And he said that this escalation shows because this comes as the U.S. and Iran are in negotiations to revive the nuclear deal, which would result in the U.S. lifting sanctions on Iran. And Iran would be able to export its oil to many more countries than they can now. But now we see this escalation. And the U.S. is bragging about killing Iran-linked fighters in Syria. It, you know, when, when you frame it like that, um, it sounds like the U.S. and Iran are fighting a war in Syria right now. Even though, you know, they're, when it comes to these Shia militias, that's what they are most likely targeting. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, the facilities that the U.S. targeted in the first strike on Tuesday struck a group called Fati Miyun, which is an Afghan Shia militia. With these Shia militias in Syria and the Iraqi Shia militias, they vary by degree how how aligned they are with Iran, and Iran definitely supports a lot of them. 
but it doesn't mean that their Iran directs their every move. And the U.S. is claiming that they started this escalation in response to a to an August 15th drone attack on the U.S. base at Al Tamf, Syria. But they're not providing any evidence to show that this first group they targeted was responsible for it. So we just don't know what's going on. And then they come out and say that these strikes are self-defense. But it's they can't claim self-defense in Syria because their presence there is an illegal occupation. Um, but so that's where we're at now. There could be more escalations here. Could be more attacks on U.S. troops, and just which would lead to more airstrikes. Um, but this is definitely pretty concerning. But I hope I wasn't too redundant there because I know I covered all that. Yes, a lot of that yesterday. But it's pretty important to keep an eye on this. It doesn't seem like it's getting too much attention. And now here's more airstrikes in Syria, but these are from Israel. Israel launched airstrikes in Syria's central Hama province on Thursday wounding at least two civilians, according to Syrian state media. The Syrian reports said that air defenses intercepted some of the missiles that were launched from the direction of the Mediterranean Sea. The missiles targeted areas in Hama, as well as Tartus, which is a province in western Syria on the Mediterranean Sea. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, the targets included a scientific research facility and warehouses used by what they call Iran-backed fighters, which again means the Shia militias that have a presence in Syria. Israel has yet to comment on the airstrikes, and it's rare that they officially acknowledge their attacks in Syria. They usually don't, but Israel frequently bombs the country, and they've launched hundreds of airstrikes just in recent years. And you know this comes as the U.S. has launched a series of airstrikes in eastern Syria, also against what they're calling Iran-backed fighters. Now, this is kind of business as usual for Israel. It's not necessarily a coordinated escalation by the U.S. and Israel, but I mean, that's definitely possible. Again, this comes as the U.S. and Iran are negotiating a revival of the nuclear deal, and Israel is strongly, strongly opposed to this deal. And when we've seen in the past when Israel's trying to raise tensions with Iran to sort of sabotage diplomacy, between the U.S. and Iran, something they do is step up airstrikes in Syria, um, because there are Iran does have a presence. They have IRGC officers are in Syria. They just announced the other day that an IRGC officer was killed on Sunday during. I think they described it as in a, during a mission in Syria. There wasn't any Israeli or U.S. reported strikes on that day, so I don't think that. Uh, the guy was killed in airstrikes, but still, there are Iranian officers in Syria. Syria is an ally of Iran. Syria is an ally of Russia. And bombing the country like this just really risks sparking a wider war. And as I, I discussed yesterday, again, that the U.S. does coordinate some of these Israeli airstrikes. There was a report in the Wall Street Journal that said the Israeli airstrikes that come through the Al-Tamf base in, in southern Syria... Basically, if an Israeli plane has to fly through there to bomb Syria, the U.S. has to sign off on it. So they give their approval for these strikes. Okay, so the next one. Israeli officials say that the U.S. toughened its stance in response to Iran deal proposal. So where we're at, we're at with the Iran deal, the EU made this proposal, Iran responded, and then the U.S. responded to Iran's response. 
Now, Israeli officials told Axios, this is a report that came out on Thursday, that the U.S. has toughened its stance on certain Iranian demands in its response to this EU proposal. So this isn't really a good sign if Israel is happy with what the U.S. has sent Iran. Israeli National Security Advisor El Hulata, he was in Washington this week where he met with his counterpart, Jake Sullivan, and he also met with Brett McGurk, who is the top Middle East official on the National Security Council. The U.S. officials briefed Hulata on their plan, on their planned response to Iran. So they told Israel what they were going to tell Iran before they submitted their response. And when he arrived in Washington, the Israeli government was worried that the U.S. would soften its stance on Iran. But by the time he left, those concerns were eased. This is all according to this Axios report that cites a few Israeli officials. The report said that the U.S. refused two key Iranian demands. One was the easing of sanctions on companies that do business with Iran's IRGC, which is designated by the U.S. as a foreign terrorist organization. Iran earlier, they wanted that designation lifted. That designation was put in place by the Trump administration after the U.S. pulled out of the nuclear deal. And it's a sweeping designation. Now these companies in Iran, so what Iran was trying to do, after they dropped the demand to have the designation lifted. And this is just my reading. This is just based on reports that are coming out during these negotiations. So we don't really know everything for, for sure. But this is my understanding of it is that so instead of having the designation lifted, there's companies in Iran that do business that make transactions with the IRGC. The IRGC is part of Iran's military. So they make if they make transactions with the IRGC, that makes them subject to U.S. sanctions. So these Iranian companies wouldn't be able to do business with Western countries once the U.S. sanctions are lifted. So Iran said, okay, how about you have an exemption for that? So these, when you lift sanctions, these countries can do business. But according to this report, the Israelis are saying, nope, the U.S. refused that demand. And Iran has also asked for the IAEA to drop its investigation into traces of uranium at undeclared nuclear sites. And this says that the U.S. refused that. Now, the other demand was concerning um, a a sort of guarantee for if the U.S. pulls out of the deal again, like they did in 2018. It's a very understandable concern for Iran. So they're seeking a two and a half year grace period that if the U.S. pulls out of the deal, and reimposes sanctions, Western companies, international companies that started doing business with Iran, that are doing business in Iran, they have a two and a half year grace period if the U.S. leaves the deal. So that means the U.S. and Iran return to the nuclear deal, sanctions are lifted. Say you got a company and you want to go do some business in Iran, you go, but then the U.S. pulls out of the deal again, you have two and a half years to keep doing that business. So this report says that the U.S. kind of agreed to this as long as Iran stays in the deal, which is how this report worded it. Well, Iran is technically still in the deal right now. Their nuclear program has exceeded the limits set by the JCPOA, but the nuclear program isn't bound by the JCPOA since the U.S. left and imposed sanctions. The U.S. isn't living up to its end of the agreement, so Iran has no commitment to live up to theirs. So this likely means that Iran would keep its, that this would only apply if Iran keeps its 
nuclear program within those limits. So this report said the Israelis were happy with that. I'm surprised they were because that kind of is the, the U.S. agreeing to a sort of guarantee. So that's kind of a good sign. But also just the fact that Israel is happy about this is not a good sign. It's a sign that it might not be enough for Iran to accept. Um, so Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid, he said publicly that Israel's pressure and influence on the U.S. Ha- has worked. And he seems like he's happy with what the U.S. told the EU. He said, quote, the Americans accepted a large part of the things that we wanted them to include in the drafts, end quote. So Iran's currently reviewing the U.S. response. The Iranians haven't said much about the contents. We're not really sure how they're feeling about it. Um, So only time will tell what happens here. But I've been skeptical that this deal will be revived, and this is adding to my skepticism, Israel's... uh, fact that Israel seems to be happy. All right, so the next one here, getting into Taiwan and China. Taiwan unveils plans to raise its military budget by 14%. It's a pretty big budget year over year, a 14% increase, 13.9% to be exact. So this was Taiwan's cabinet. Um, They signed off on this increase on Thursday. The island's parliament still still needs to improve still needs to approve it from what i understand that's likely going to happen and this will bring their total military budget to about 19.41 billion that's us dollars and it represents 15 percent of the government's annual budget the new military spending includes funding for fighter jets and other equipment the budget boost will likely benefit us arm makers as taiwan often purchases us weapons and maintains a fleet of f-16 fighter jets. Taiwan's cabinet chief, Taiwan's uh, chief budget official in the cabinet said that most of the funding is going to go toward operations around the island as China has stepped up its military activity in response to Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan. So what he's saying is that the budget it's mainly for now that China is really stepped up its pressure, military pressure on the island, They're sending planes over the median line just about every day. I think there's probably still some Chinese warships sailing around. They're saying, okay, so we have to send planes and ships out because of this. And that's what most of this money is going to be spent on. So that's, you know, a consequence of Pelosi going over there is is Taiwan has to spend more on its military. And um, the... uh, Again, the, the U.S. arms makers are going to make out on this. The U.S. has hasn't had diplomatic ties with Taiwan since 1979, since it formally switched to recognize China. But since then, the U.S. has always sold weapons to Taiwan, and uh, there's a chance that those sales could increase in, as the U.S. is increasing its support. There's a lot of bills in the works, a lot of legislation in Congress that would give military aid to Taiwan, like billions each year. Uh, which would put them up to like close to how much countries like Israel, Egypt that are top recipients of military aid. Although, I mean, Ukraine has now kind of blown them all out of the water, but um, you know, the U S Congress, they've got their sights on really stepping up support for Taiwan. And here's another example of that Senator Marsha Blackburn. She's a Republican from Tennessee. She arrived in Taiwan on Thursday 
in the fourth U.S. visit to the island this month as Washington continues to escalate tensions with Beijing. Blackburn's trip was unannounced, and she and her aides arrived in Taiwan aboard a U.S. Army plane. On Twitter, Blackburn said that she made the trip to send a message to Beijing. So fourth, this is the fourth trip. It was Nancy Pelosi. She led a delegation, Senator Ed Markey, Democrat from Massachusetts. He led a delegation just a few days after Pelosi. And then the governor of Indiana, he went there. And now Blackburn, all in August. I mean, this is very frequent. They've really stepped up these delegations since Pelosi went, since these tensions just escalated so much. And they're not stopping. And Blackburn is... She's been in the Senate since 2019, and she's a total China hawk. She said some pretty stupid things about China. Um, Also on Twitter, she went on kind of this little Twitter tirade after she landed in Taiwan, saying, I'll I'll never kowtow to the Chinese communists. I'm not afraid of Xi Jinping. And she also labeled China as a part of new axis of evil in her remarks on Twitter. She said, quote, It's time we focus on rewarding Taiwan's commitment to democratic values and ensure they have the necessary resources to combat communist China and the new axis of evil, end quote. This is a common theme I'm starting to see with Republicans is that they're using kind of Bush era war on terror, terror rhetoric against China. Um, Back in 2020, Blackburn wrote something pretty ridiculous on Twitter. She wrote, quote, China has a 5,000-year history of cheating and stealing. Some things will never change, end quote. So um, she just really bashes China. So I'm sure this is going to anger China, her visit. We know it will because all of these visits do, but her in particular, that might uh, anger them a little more. Uh, Back in July, she introduced a bill that would authorize the Biden administration to lend weapons to Taiwan. The legislation was based on the World War II era Lend-Lease Act, and that allowed the U.S. to ship billions in weapons to the Soviet Union, France, Britain, and other allies. And that preceded the U.S. entry into the war um, when they first passed that and started shipping weapons with it. The Lend-Lease Act, it was recently revived for Ukraine. And it was passed through Congress, signed by President Biden. I don't think they've used it because they're getting all all these tens of billions of dollars to just give Ukraine weapons. So they don't really need to lease them weapons, but they did pass it. And it was that's pretty symbolic because, again, it's World War Two era program that they're reviving. I mean, this is how showing how they view the war in Ukraine and and how they view a potential war in Taiwan. I mean. It's just scary stuff. And um, so, yeah, more congressional delegations. I guess this is just going to become a common thing now. And all these senators and House reps and state governors are just going to try to outhawk each other on their support for Taiwan. There's something, though, about Republicans. You know, they don't really disguise <laughs> stuff like this as Pelo- as much as the Democrats do. I mean, Pelosi was very hawkish in her rhetoric, too. But she was really talking about democracy how the trip is great for democracy and then blackburn as soon as she lands i'm here to send a message to beijing and it's just total just hawkish rhetoric so you could at least appreciate you know it's a little more upfront. <laughs> um so this next one here this is from will porter at the libertarian institute uk foreign secretary liz truss says that she's ready to launch a nuclear war 
So I mentioned her yesterday. She's in the running to replace Boris Johnson, who will be stepping down next month. And she was at a town hall event in Birmingham. And she was asked what she would do or how would she feel if she had to order a nuclear strike. And I have the video here. So you guys should just listen to this because it really says everything. To a room, very privately at number 10, will be laid out in front of you what are called the letters of last resort. Your orders to our Trident boat captain on whether you, Prime Minister Liz Truss, is giving the order to unleash our nuclear weapons. It would mean global annihilation. I won't ask you, would you press the button? You will say yes. But faced with that task, I would feel physically sick. How does that thought make you feel? I think it's an important duty of the Prime Minister. I'm ready to do that. I asked how it would make you feel. I'm, I'm ready to do it. So she's ready to do it. And you heard that applause. I mean, that's just the state of things in the UK. Really uh, disturbing stuff. Just, you know, she was asked how she would feel uh, if you had to launch nuclear weapons. You would think at least there would be some comments about the kind of the gravity of it and what it would mean. And she's just like, nope, I'm ready. Let's do it. And she's been really hawkish throughout this whole war in Ukraine. And man, I mean, the British, they're just going to keep going full steam ahead with this. Um. And then her, the other candidate who's leading, I forget his name. He's a former finance minister. He's super, you know, pro supporting Ukraine and very hawkish on China and the whole thing too. So it's not like he would be any better, but maybe he would answer that question a little better. Um, the next one here, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine that has been the site of frequent shelling. It was disconnected from the Ukrainian power grid on Thursday for the first time ever. Due to a fire in a transmission line, it caused a blackout in the region. And the plant, um, the Russian-installed leader in the Zaporizhia Oblast, Russia controls the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the territory around it, and most of the Zaporizhia Oblast. So the Russian-installed leader, he blamed the damage on a Ukrainian attack, the damage that took the power plant out of, out of operation, disconnected it from the grid. And Ukraine has been trying to blame the shelling on this power plant on Moscow. But Russia, they don't really have a reason to be bombing a plant that they control. Their military is there. It's militarized. Um, and they've rejected calls to demilitarize the area. And so they're saying it would leave it more vulnerable to Ukraine. But there's definitely um, just a lot going on there. And it's a very dangerous situation. I mean, this shows if this is true that a, an attack knocked it out of line, I mean, very dangerous. And the IAEA, the UN's nuclear watchdog, they renewed a request to inspect the power plant. And they're hoping that their inspectors can visit the plant before September 5th. And a report from Bloomberg said something pretty interesting, that this IAEA mission, they're going to have more authority than usual. And they could possibly investigate the attacks and potentially attribute them to somebody to the responsible party and russia has been calling for the iaea inspection saying you know once they get here they're going to see who's been attacking the plant and while ukraine has been accusing russia of doing it i haven't really seen the u.s or european officials kind of back up that claim western media has 
framed it so the readers are led to believe that it's Russia doing the shelling because they usually don't tell you until a few paragraphs in that Russia controls the plant. Um, but, you know, we know that these international agencies, they their investigations can definitely be corrupted, but it'll be interesting to see what they have to say when they finally make it to this plant. And the next, the last one on the page here, this is from the Libertarian Institute, Kyle Anzalone. American F-35s take part in a 17-nation war game. Washington and several of its closest partners kicked off massive military exercises in Australia. F-35s from the U.S. and Britain will join advanced warplanes from India, Japan, South Korea, France, and several other countries. A NATO press release on the war game. So you have NATO involved in these drills in Australia. Um, they called it Pitch Black 22. They say the drills involve about 100 aircraft and 2,500 military personnel. So these are uh, these exercises last took place in 2018, and the 2021s were canceled because of the COVID-19. So these are involved in these drills is all four members of the group known as the Quad, which is the U.S., Australia, India, Japan. It's a group that Hawks in Washington want to be like a foundation for a NATO-style alliance in East Asia. Um, not East Asia, because India is included, but in, in Asia, in the what they call the Indo-Pacific. So we'll probably see more exercises, more joint drills with these countries as things go on here. Uh, but that's it for today. Again, this is the last show for the week. Hope you've been enjoying it. Um, I, I hope <laughs> there's some frogs that are really loud outside my window. Usually in the summer here at night, they can get pretty loud. So I hope they didn't get picked up. But um, I'll uh, I'll talk to you guys after the weekend. And you could contact the show, news at antiwar.com. You could donate to the show, antiwar.com slash donate. And follow me on Twitter and all that good stuff. Tell your friends, share the show, subscribe on YouTube. I'll talk to you in a couple of days. Thank you for listening.